0: This morning we will talk about <clears throat> conversation. Questions have answers. The text we'll look at primarily is in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you want to turn there, we will look in just a moment. Our keywords for the worshipers in training are question, doubt, and skeptic. We're nearing the end of our series called Life Together, Community, Truth, and Mission. And we've been talking for several weeks on this idea of mission, the mission of the church, the mission of the church of Christ throughout the world, and specifically the mission of Ephesus Church in Rincon, Georgia. And so I want to continue on with that this morning as we talk about our conversations, our dialogue with those in the world who do not embrace Christ as their ultimate treasure. Now, many of you may know uh, a man by the name, not personally, but you know who he is, uh, Penn Gillette. He is part of the comic duo Pen and Teller. You have seen them before. They're comedians, they're magicians, they have a long-running uh, show in Las Vegas, and I think they're probably on TV every now and then. But Penn tells a story, uh, and you can look it up on YouTube, of a Christian businessman who came up to him after uh, one of their shows. They come down after the show, they sign autographs, shake hands, all of that, and they come and they meet people. And there was a Christian businessman who, uh, who came to Penn. Now, it's interesting as you watch Penn recount this story, how moved he seems by this encounter. He says the man came to him, was genuinely complimentary about the show and about what they did and everything. He said he continued to say, the man just kept looking me right in the eyes. I could tell he was genuine. He told him he was a normal guy. And he handed Penn a little New Testament that he had written on in the inside cover. And he said, I want you to have this. It's a gift. And so they had a short conversation and it was over. And the next day, Penn got onto his blog and made a video that's now on the internet. And this is what he said. He said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Who believe that there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell. Or not getting eternal life or whatever. And you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. An atheist who thinks that people should not proselytize. Just leave me alone. Keep your religion to yourself. How much more do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? That's a great question, Penn. Interestingly, Penn is an atheist. <laughs> a very outspoken atheist. Now realize, we will in our lives as Christians encounter all sorts of unbelievers on a spectrum of unbelief. And not all will respond like Penn. pen. Not all of them are atheists. The question remains for us, if we believe what we say we believe, what are we doing about it? How are we being intentional about our mandate as a Christian people to go and tell as ministers of reconciliation? This mandate is really difficult to avoid in the Bible, right? We see in Matthew 28, 18-20, the Great Commission. Jesus calls us to go into all the world making disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. 1 Peter 3:15 tells us that Christians are to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within us. Jude verse 3 is a command to contend for the faith. And 2 Corinthians 5:20 tells us that we as Christians are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And the message that we are delivering on behalf of Christ is be reconciled. Now, the world around us has many questions. And as Christians, we adamantly believe that God in the Bible has given us answers to those questions. So what do we do with that? What is the meaning of these commands that we just looked at in the Bible? What is our motivation for talking to others about the Gospel? And how do we do it? What questions are people in our culture asking and how do we help them to find answers to those questions? This is at the heart of Christian mission proclaiming the good news that there is a God who is knowable and has made a way for us to live with Him forever and ever in perfect peace, unity, and joy. That is at the heart of our mission. Now look with me in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous... So Peter concludes verse 12 by promising that the Lord's favor is on the righteous and that He will punish evildoers. He draws an inference from verse 12 in verse 13. And so it follows that no one can ultimately harm those who are zealous in doing good. That's what we've been talking about in the last few weeks, participating in our culture, not hiding from it, not casting stones at it, not being so immersed in it that we do not look any different, but rather from within, creating dynamic counterculture that is consistent with community described in the Bible. And we talked last week about the the cultural mandate, the Christian's responsibility to work toward restoration, along with Christ, making all things new. Looking at our workplaces, looking at our schools and neighborhoods, our favorite hangouts, the institutions, musical styles, fashion, whatever it is. Asking the question of all of these things, what good can be done here? Now, of course we are motivated by a desire to see god glorified god tells us in his word that by our good good deeds men will see this and give glory to our father who is in heaven so peter writes to the christians in his in his day and no one and and he's he's speaking to a people who are Facing daily persecution because of their faith. And he says to them, no one can ultimately harm those who are zealous in doing good. Now, what is he talking about? Because I'm certain that Jesus made many, many statements to the contrary that we read in the four Gospels, right? Two examples from Matthew. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It doesn't sound like he's saying if. It sounds like he's saying when. Matthew ten sixteen through 18 Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You don't have to watch Animal Planet long to know that won't go well. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for My sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So these are the words of Jesus. So what does Peter mean? Well, Peter is not writing an earthly promise. Peter is writing about the promise of the heavenly inheritance that guarantees that the distress of this life does not constitute the last word. And verse 14 relates the main point of verse 13. Believers may be distressed, they may be persecuted now, but in actuality, they are blessed by God himself and will enjoy eternal reward. So the believer looks at persecution and looks at harm and says with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. So we can look at persecution and say, what are they going to do? Kill me? Big deal. And since no one can ultimately harm believers, and since they live under God's blessing, they are exhorted in verse 15 do not fear. Let's pause right there for a moment. This is important for us this morning because I believe that many Christians look at everything that we've discussed over the last few weeks in terms of mission and say, I can't do it. I'm afraid. I don't know enough they'll laugh at me, I'm embarrassed, it's too awkward, or whatever. And so many times we simply go through life not ministering reconciliation. We're not reconciling anything. But rather we're engaging in the same old things as everyone else. Conversations about the weather and sports teams and stock prices, which are all fine, But we must go further. In the book of Acts, the story of the apostles is told uh, as they are before the religious leaders. They got in trouble with the religious leaders because they were in the city preaching the gospel. And so they were called before the religious leaders to give account for their activity. Well, what did they do? They stood before the religious leaders and proclaimed the same bold gospel that they proclaimed in the streets of the city. Acts five twenty nine tells us Peter and the apostles answered We must obey God rather than men. So they lay out the gospel, they attribute the divinity, uh, they attribute divinity to Jesus Christ, and they claim that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and rules as king. Doesn't go so well. Verse thirty three tells us, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Have you ever said anything that enraged someone so much they literally were ready to kill you? This isn't talk. This isn't rhetoric. This is actually them wanting to kill them. So one of the other Pharisees calms them all down by basically telling them, if what they're saying is not true... It will get worked out. They will eventually die and this whole thing will fade away. But if it is true, then it is of God and there is no stopping it regardless of what we do. So let's just let it play out. And then in verse 40, they take his advice and when they call the apostles, they beat them and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now here, this is important. Then they left the presence of the council Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Do we ever rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor? To be shamed for the name of Christ? My intention is not to lay any kind of guilt trip on anyone this morning. I'm not trying to beat us down and tell us to try harder and do better, because the fact of the matter is, if it's not in our hearts, it's not going to happen. But what I am saying is that each of us need to consider our hearts, myself included, and ask, how much do we value Christ compared to our comfort? The approval of our Creator is infinitely valuable. While the approval of others in the end does nothing for us eternally. I am not and you are not ultimately responsible for someone else's conversion. But we are called to be faithful to the gospel and to work out the implications of the gospel, to love our neighbors enough that we want to see that they would have transformed lives. Blessed are you when men persecute and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. They will revile you. That's what I don't want more than anything. Shoot me? Yes. Revile me? No. Cause me to fail at my business. Write a nasty letter to the editor about me. That's fine. I'll stand up and I'll be cool with that. But I don't want to be reviled. The very reason Jesus takes that one on and says, blessed are you when you are reviled. Do you believe that? So what's the answer? Do we really believe what is coming? The answer to our fear is that we be heavenly minded. Life is short. Eternity is forever. Christ is there and His approval is there. And he is on our side. Do we believe that? Do we believe that in the very moment when we enter into a conversation with someone we're sitting next to on an airplane, or with our coworker in the office, or as we're hanging out in the park with our family? Do we really believe that Christ is on our side? If Jesus is supremely valuable to us, it ought to be supremely valuable to us that all others see that as well. So Peter is giving us comfort. Those who have God's promise of blessing realize that any pain in this life is short-lived. Instead of fearing what unbelievers might do, believers have Christ as Lord of their hearts. And we respond to those who ask about our hope. What does that look like? Well, there will be times in our lives when people will ask us, how are you suffering without fear? Why do you have so much joy in your life? Why are you always so optimistic? Why are you speaking well of that person who just harmed you? Why are you telling our boss that you're praying for him? Why are you not more devastated by your loss and the crash of the stock market? Why are you not overly stressed about losing your job? And with humility and the fear of the Lord, we simply say, Jesus. And the hope that is within us is evidence of the forever promise that we will be with Christ? How do I look pain and death and persecution and suffering in the face and say, where is your sting? Jesus. That answer we learned in Sunday school is infinitely valuable. Jesus. But don't miss the last part of what Peter is saying. Look again, verses 16 and 17. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter wants to be sure that believers, if they suffer, It is for doing what is good instead of deserving criticism because of doing what is evil. So implied in this is that there is a certain way that we go about life and that we go about speaking truth and doing good as to not be the offense. In other words, we are not the ones to be offensive and abrasive and aggressive and irritating and annoying or whatever else you want to say to that. But rather, the offense is the Gospel. Let the Gospel be the stumbling block, not you. We must be driven by Matthew 7.12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Be gracious. Be generous. I realize I am very irritating often. But we must be careful to guard ourselves from being the offense. There are several things implied in what Peter's writing here. First is that there truly is a hope within you. There is about your life a certain peculiarity about how you live each day. We're not talking about happy, clappy life. We're talking about true joy satisfaction, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Now let me ask you this, is your life marked by this? Do you have peace in your life that surpasses all understanding? When challenges present themselves, when when trials come into our lives, when the doctor looks to us and says, cancer, how do we respond? The way Christians respond gives pause to the non-believer. And eventually the question comes, what is with you? We must ask ourselves, are we living minute by minute upon the grace of God that our lives would be marked by joy? The second thing Peter implies is that we are engaged in relationships with others. For others to see that there is hope within us, we must engage in genuine relationships with them. We must find people interesting. They are. We're just too busy to learn that about one another. You are never in any part of your life standing in front of another person who is not interesting. They are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. There are a thousand interesting things that have happened to them. But for most of them, no one is interested in them at all. But what if you were? What if you found them to be really interesting? If anybody should be interested in other people, in other human beings, it's Christians. We see them in the image of God, and then all of a sudden, something triggers with them. You must think there's something worth pursuing here. There's something interesting. That is unusual. I'm not talking about a clever strategy here. I'm talking about real life. Real engagement. This is how the Gospel gets articulated. Real interest in real people who need Jesus just like I do. Created in God's image, like me. A sinner, like me. In need of Christ, like me. Lost, like I was. I can't really be interested in a person if I do not care about the Gospel in their life. So the question is, do we pause to be interested in somebody, or are we always going somewhere? You know, one of the things I love most about what I do, about my job, is I get to hear about your lives and the lives of other people. There's some interesting people here, let me tell you. I love to sit down to a meal or to coffee and to hear your stories and to hear about your life. You are interesting, and I hope we're taking the time to see that about one another. I hope we're taking the time to see that about those in our community, our neighbors, and our co-workers. And as we do this, as this becomes more and more a part of our life, the questions will start coming. Now understand, you're going to rub up against all sorts of different people when you are busy about the work of Gospel. Making relationships, digging into their lives, fulfilling the mission, you will meet all sorts of people. Some people we'll meet are very skeptical about what we believe. Often these are people who have heard enough of the wrong things by the clowns who say they speak for Christians on television. Now, granted, there is some skepticism because much of what we believe is quite unbelievable, right? It's supernatural. It's the work of a sovereign God, and it must be explained as such. So there are skeptics. There are those who are jaded because of bad religious experiences in their lives. Perhaps they grew up in legalism or moralism, or they saw the lives of individuals who call themselves Christians but had lives completely contrary to the gospel, and they just cashed it all in and said, forget about it. There are some who are just ignorant about what the Bible teaches and about Christ. They may have heard of Jesus, but they really don't know much about Him or what we believe about Him or what He said about Himself. You will encounter antagonists. In fact, this is being promoted all the more today with a a wave of uh, it's being called New Atheism. This is the likes of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and men like this. These men are typically looking for a fight and seeking to do intellectual gymnastics. While some men are gifted by God to engage in these types of interaction, for most of us it's simply to cast pearls before swine. They trample it underfoot and attack you. It's a dead end. We'll encounter those who are in cults and false religions... You know, sometimes gospel opportunities just happen to show up at our own doorstep. You don't even need to leave the comfort of your own home. And most common in our culture is non-Christian Christians. Those who have been inoculated with just enough gospel to believe that they are Christians when, in fact, there is nothing about their hearts that has been transformed. They've heard the truth, and outside the outside of their cup may be very clean, but the inside is as filthy and as wicked as it ever was. And what do all these people need? The skeptics, the jaded, the ignorant, the antagonists, those in cults and false religions, those who think they're believers when they're not. What do they need? They all need the very same thing. They all need the Gospel. Now listen, God does not expect us as Christians to know all there is to know about every religious preference and worldview of every person we come across. I would submit to you as not possible. There are many. But He does expect us to know the truth. And in knowing the truth, we are able to contend for the faith. When you know it is true, when you know it is biblical, it is very evident when you spot something that is not. And the more truth you know, the more evident falsehood becomes. So, some good things for all of us to chew on this morning. What is Christianity? What is the gospel? Some say it's a philosophy, while others simply say it's an ethical stance. Others claim it's an experience. But none of these get to the heart of the matter. Each is something a Christian has, but none of them serves the definition of what Christianity is. Our faith has at its core a transaction between a person and a holy and righteous God. A person who becomes a Christian moves from knowing God distantly to knowing Him directly and personally. Christianity is knowing God. John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So here are some questions we need to help those people we will encounter to work through. What do we want to help them to see? First, why do I need to know God? Our desire for personal knowledge of God is very strong. But we usually fail to recognize that desire for what it is. When we fall in love, when we first marry, when we finally break into our chosen field, when we're able to acquire that weekend getaway These breakthroughs arouse us in anticipation of something which, it turns out, never occurs. And we eventually discover that our desire for this precious something is a longing for something that can never satisfy. And that fades, and we close in on our goal and realize it never was what I thought it would be. Nothing delivers the joy it seemed to promise. So how do we respond to this? Some respond to this by blaming the things themselves. By finding fault in everyone and everything around you. You believe that a better spouse, a better career, a better boss or salary would finally yield that elusive joy. Many of the most successful people in the world are like this. They're bored and discontent and they're running from new thing to new thing often changing counselors and mates and partners and settings and whatever. Some will blame themselves by trying harder to live up to their own standards. Many people believe it's simply that they've made poor choices or failed to measure up to the challenges to achieve what they want to. If only I could reach my goals, then all of this emptiness would be gone, and then they meet their goals, and it is not so. Many will respond by blaming the universe itself, by giving up seeking fulfillment at all. This is the person who says, yes, when I was young, I was idealistic, I was a go-getter, but at my age, I've stopped howling at the moon. It makes you become cynical. You repress that part of yourself, that once desired Joy. Others respond by blaming and recognizing their separation from God. By seeing that the emptiness comes from separation from God. And by establishing a personal relationship with Him. And so we must help them to see this. Why they need to know God. And in order to see personal relationship with God, we must understand who we are. Who we are as God's creation built to be in relationship to Him. And if we're not in relationship to Him, we choose some other object of ultimate devotion. We are sinners. We have chosen and we reaffirm daily to reject God and to make our own joy and happiness our highest priority over and above what God has commanded of us. And so we chase after success and relationships and influence and love and comfort and so on and so forth. We must see ourselves as people who are in spiritual bondage. To live for anything else but God leads to breakdown and decay. Worshipping other things besides God leads to self-image problems. We start to see ourselves as the end, not created in God's image. So we must understand who we are. But we also must understand who God is. God is love and God is just. Most people love those who love them. Yet God loves and seeks the good of those who are His enemies. But because God is good and loving, He cannot tolerate Evil. The opposite of love is not anger, but indifference. And to imagine God's situation, imagine a judge who is a father who sits at the trial of his guilty son. A judge knows he cannot let his son go, for without justice, no society can survive. How much less can a loving God merely ignore or suspend justice for us? We are loved. Yet we are guilty of rebellion against His loving authority. And so we must understand who God is in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God Himself who has come to earth, lived a perfect life, loving God, serving the Father with all of His heart, And He lived the life we owe. A perfect record. And then instead of receiving His deserved reward, Jesus gave His life as a sacrifice for our sins, taking the punishment and granting us righteousness. And when we believe in Him, our sins are paid for by His death, and His perfect life record is transferred to our account. And so we know who God is and who we are. And so what must we do? We must repent and believe the Gospel. This is, this is the very thing that needs to be and ought to be in our lives, constantly flowing out of our hearts in our relationships with other people. We answer these questions for others. Why do we need to know God? Who is God? Why ought we to seek after God? I hope all of us can answer these questions ourselves, but we need to make sure that we can help others answer those questions and walk through many other important topics that they may bring up. I'm not talking about a systematic way of presenting the Gospel. Asking questions and waiting for just the right response so we know how to go at them again. I'm talking about a relationship with individuals with whom we are able to talk through each of these things and working through others as they come up. Questions like, why does God allow suffering? He's either indifferent or He's not loving. Which one is it? Or how is it that people could have lived for 800 or 900 years? Or, how do you say that you believe in one God, but worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Can you answer these questions? I bet most of us can, but never will. Because we have a tendency to be fat on knowledge and slim on serving a meal for others to feast on. Look, we're not looking for eloquent Perfect textbook answers here. We're looking for genuine engagement that explores these things with others in an honest and loving way. This will never happen if we don't do something to get our relationships going in the first place, and if we're not intentional about what we say when we are with others. We're not out looking for a fight. We're looking for genuine relationships with real people because we care about them because hell is real and eternity is forever. We're not going to give them meaningless answers like, you just got to have faith. So you're saying God exists and Jesus is His Son and, hey man, just have faith. Well, what good does it do for me to tell an unregenerate man to have faith in something he doesn't have faith in? This is not contending for the faith. Reasoning as the Apostle Paul did in the synagogue. So we must know the truth. We need to be saturated in the Word of God. We need to read good books to give us means of thinking great thoughts after others. To think of God in different ways. And we must read and meditate on and memorize the Bible and ask hard questions of the text and apply it to our lives. Don't be afraid of hard questions. People have for hundreds of years sought to poke holes in the Scripture and not once has it been done. To this day, not one person can point to one falsehood in the Scriptures. The Bible doesn't need to be proven truthful. There are ways to do that and to point to that, but ultimately it does well on its own. We can help others see along the way. But we too need to ask questions there are answers, even if the answer is, you know what, God didn't really reveal that to us. And I would submit to you that if everything that could be known, if if we could know everything there was to know about God, then He's not really God. If we could fully explain all that is about God, then He's a pretty small God. So yes, faith is necessary, but that is not the end-all answer, particularly for those who do not believe in the first place. And when we engage others in relationship, it's important that we listen. When I'm talking with non-believers, I want to be able to understand their hang-ups, their opposition, their worldview. I want to know all of this well enough that when I articulate it back to them, they feel that I've said it better and more persuasively than they could have. I don't want to develop a caricature that I, I have in my mind of my misunderstandings of what they believe or what they may be saying based on bits and pieces of what I've heard. We need to listen carefully. We need to be gracious and full of love and respond with truth and compel them to believe in the Gospel. The task of evangelism is pursuing the process where people's thinking and worldviews change. And so this is process-oriented, relationally based. When the Gospel truths are lived out before their eyes and they see what we're doing and they hear the words that we are speaking and they match up with one another because we are doing the implications of the Gospel in word and in deed. Something I often hear from Christians is that We don't do this. We don't engage others with the Gospel because it's too difficult to know our neighbors. Or it's too difficult to talk to co-workers while everything is going on that day. Or it's too difficult to really engage someone when I'm at Walmart or whatever. Listen, it is not difficult to get to know your neighbors. It's simply not something that most of us value. We need to get creative in this. And the result of us not valuing our relationships is a culture of seclusion. Often said, it's very common that we get in our cars in the garage and drive to work and sit in a cubicle and pick our meal up from a window and drive home and park in the garage. And so all we see all day long is our family and one or two others that we work with. Christians stand a better chance of changing the social landscape than anybody else. In fact, the societal problem presents us with an opportunity to confront the most elusive of all evangelical goals, to serve Christ and our neighbors in the surrounding culture at the same time. This is crucial to everything we've looked at this morning. You cannot love your neighbor if you do not Know your neighbor. And just because all of your encounters with them do not end up in spiritual transformation or even really any kind of direct discussion on spiritual things every time, it does not mean that it's a net loss. It's a long, slow process of longevity with their greatest good in mind. But eventually, we get to the gospel. So let us as a people be resolved to undertake this kind of work in our lives, confident that it is a legitimate end unto itself to build relationships with others. Our culture deserves our attention, and God will call us to account for the time we spend serving and loving our neighbors. So maybe your coworkers are tough to reach in a work setting and all of your friends are sitting here this morning, and you don't know your neighbors, and if that's the case, then you really have no one who has the opportunity to observe your life in a context that would make spiritual transformation possible through these means. So given those realities, I just want to give us a a radical suggestion. Just one. It's not that knowing our neighbors should be important to Christians. That is implied. But the radical thing I want to present to us is that we actually put it on our calendars to know our neighbors this summer. And to make it a habit of our lives. And to help you do that, I even have a few suggestions. I realize that my suggestions apply a lot more to neighborhoods like mine where houses are a little bit closer, and if you live out in the trees somewhere, you have to get creative in another way, but I'm trying to help. (laughs) What would it look like if we invited everyone on our block to a gathering? To ask a large group of people, either if you're in an apartment building or your whole block, maybe a backyard barbecue or a block party or rent out the clubhouse in your neighborhood or, or whatever. Avoid the impression you're trying to build a clique. and it gives you a much higher chance for success. And you just make the evening much more enjoyable as you see various people. Spend some of your resources. Get invitations. Spread them through the community. People like to be invited to events. Learn how to actively listen before you invite friends and neighbors over. So then you don't have to prepare entertainment for the people. If you're truly interested in who they are and want to hear about their lives, conversation will happen and entertainment will take care of itself. And then we are transparent in our faith. First time meeting a neighbor they may be very excited that you've been bold to take such a step because they've lived there for five, six, ten years and no one's ever sought to know them. In that moment, you can simply say, this is something that Christians value. And in that one sentence, your faith is known, your motives are known, and all credit is given for something that these people openly have liked already. It's plain spoken honesty... At its best. And it's a more effective way to live with our neighbors. But again, we cannot love our neighbors if we do not know them. So get it on our calendars and have fun with it. I want to challenge all of us to do that. I want to challenge myself to do that. And we are trying to help you with this. To free up your time as much as we can as a church. To encourage you to do these things. And to equip you in order to be ministers of reconciliation. Everything we do, we do intentionally with our eye on equipping you to be able to do this great work of ministry. Now, I could give you several examples of how to make this happen. This is just one. We need to get creative. The bottom line is we need to know our neighbors. And a great way to do it is to be to have a great reputation on the block that we throw the best parties. Right? We invite all the neighbors and we have a good time getting to know people we never sought to know before. And I promise in doing so, gospel opportunities will arise. It's inevitable. We need to know our coworkers. We need to know the waiters and waitresses and business owners in our community. And we need to work on building meaningful relationships with them in order to fulfill this mission. To love our neighbors and to see transformed lives. Now here's the bottom line and then we're done. Do we really believe what we're saying? Do we believe that we as a church, that we as Christians, have a mission that demands radical urgency because heaven and hell are real? And there are millions of people who do not know Christ, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that the only way to the Father is through Him. Here's the deal the intellectual universalism that the world clings to is dangerous. This is the most common idea in the world, that if there is a God and there is a heaven, in the end everyone will go there and everything will be okay. That's a dangerous idea. But worse than that is functional universalism. Living like in the end, everyone is going to be okay. We need to be contending for the truth that universalism is a hellish lie. But we need to live radically in a way that everything we have is sacrificed. Our possessions, our time, our health, our security, our safety, and even our lives. To make the gospel known amongst all the peoples of the world. This is the only possible response for people who really believe the Bible. That's our mission. And knowing Christ is that important. Challenge all of us to get after it. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You do not leave us ignorant. That You answer our questions. That You have revealed much about Yourself. That as we live this life, You not only call us to do the work of the Gospel, but that You equip us to do that work. You grant us hearts to believe and understand. and to love. Help us, Lord, to be motivated by love. Love for our neighbors. Love for our coworkers, Love for those who serve us in the places we go and in the things we do. I pray, God, that You help us to be creative in how we seek to reach our neighbors. Help each of us to see That the street we live on is a mission field that is ripe. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Father, make each of us to see ourselves as workers in the harvest field. Help us to have a genuine concern for our neighbors. Help us to not be driven to live life before them by guilt or by a sense of a feeling of of weightiness because it's a duty we have to perform. But rather, God, I pray that You would transform all of our hearts and be working in all of our hearts that we truly love them and desire to see them know Christ. Not to bring them here, not to see this building full, but that they would see Christ and treasure Him for all that He is. And then that they would come and rejoice with us and our hearts would be full of gladness because of what You are doing in and through them. Help us, God, to know Your Word, to desire more of Your Word, to long for greater thoughts about You and greater understanding of the truth. I pray, God, that You would raise up in our midst those who will do the very difficult work of knowing more of what others in the world teach. That that can be refuted and defended. Our faith can be reasoned for in the public arena. We pray, God, that we would all do that in our individual lives. I pray, God, that You would raise up people in our midst to take what they know Of the truths of God and bring it to the uttermost parts of the world. Lord, you are gracious to us in being faithful to give us truth and life. I pray, God, that we would wield our swords rightly, that they would be sharp and ready, and that we would contend for the faith. We would proclaim the gospel. And that we would always be ready to give an answer, to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Father, help us to rest fully in that hope as we secure our eyes on eternal glory with Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.